Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next 20 minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses seven metaphors to describe himself all beginning with the phrase, I am. The second of these is, I am the light of the world. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also told his followers that they are the light of the world. Today, we'll take a close look at what this metaphor reveals about Jesus and what it has to teach us about earning rewards in the kingdom of heaven. I'm Andy Balog. And I'm Jordan Pine. Let's listen now. To the Word of God. A reading from the Gospel of John. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That was John chapter 8, verse 12, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. A key principle of Bible study is that we must always seek to take out of the Bible what God put into it, rather than reading into the Bible what we want it to say. Amy Hall over at Stand to Reason put it perfectly in a recent article titled, Teach What the Bible Says First. She writes, Sometimes people who are teaching the Bible try much too hard to be brilliant, giving us their own insights into life rather than letting the brilliance of the Bible speak for itself. Let the Bible speak, she writes. I would rather hear one halting, inexperienced speaker show me God in a text of the Bible than hear 1,000 polished pastors give me their three-point alliterated instructions for life, which are often only loosely based on the actual text, end quote. And that's why we created the SPACE method. SPACE is an acronym that reminds us to consider the speaker, audience, and context of a Bible passage before attempting an explanation. In other words, I like to think about the SP, A, and C before getting into the E. The speaker is Jesus, the Messiah, the promised, eternal King of Israel, and the one whom the prophet Isaiah called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. The audience in the first case, in John chapter 8, is the people of Israel as well as the scribes and Pharisees. 
The context is immediately after Jesus had been teaching the people in the temple and the scribes and the Pharisees had brought an adulterous woman to him to stone in the courtyard. Now, this was the famous moment when Jesus said, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And of course, no one casted a stone. Immediately after this, he tells the people gathered and the Pharisees that he is the light of the world. Now, in the second case, the audience in Matthew 5 is also the people of Israel, but more specifically, it is the disciples. The context is the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus delivered to his disciples with the crowds listening below. Here, he tells his disciples that they are the light of the world. This is right after he has also told them that they are the salt of the earth. And now we're ready to get into an explanation of our scripture reading. Let's break it down. Our guest reader today is Christian. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, the first thing we need to notice here is that Jesus begins with the words, I am. Here's the Bible study website, gotquestions.org, on why this is so important. The phrase, I am, is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The phrase speaks of self-sufficient existence, or what theologians refer to as aseity, which is an attribute only God possesses. It is also a phrase the Jews who were listening would have automatically understood as a claim to deity. As mentioned, today's I am statement is the second one in the Gospel of John. In our last lesson, we looked at the first one, John 6.25, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Here in John 8, Jesus says he is the light of the world and speaks of walking in darkness without him. A question, Jordan. What is Jesus trying to communicate? So here's what occurred to me when I thought about it, Andy. There is only one sun, S-U-N, in our solar system that brings physical light to our world. And there is only one sun, S-O-N, who brought spiritual light to the world. Before God the Son came into the world, mankind was in spiritual darkness, unable to see the truth of the things of God. Jesus Christ alone illuminated everything in the scriptures, and he revealed God's plan for reconciling mankind to himself. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 13, quote, Blessed are your eyes because they see. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. The prophets and righteous people knew of the promises, but they did not have the light to allow them to see how those promises would be fulfilled. They did not have Jesus. And this light metaphor describing our Lord is all throughout the Bible, connecting to other metaphors and types as well. Yes, so let's talk about two of those, the Word and the Lamb. Now, we know that Jesus is the embodiment of God's Word, the Logos, or in the Greek pronunciation, the Logos. Per John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was given the name Jesus. Psalms 119 verse 105 connects this truth to the light metaphor, and it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Now, that's a great truth and a great meditation for the believer who's seeking the higher knowledge of God. Okay, so the word is Jesus, and the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. What about the lamb? Okay, so let's project forward to the end of time, beyond the rapture, beyond the tribulation, beyond the second coming of Jesus, and even the thousand-year reign of Christ our Lord. Let's go as far as we can go in prophecy to what John saw about what life will be like on the new earth in the new holy city. In Revelation 21, he writes that this city, quote, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Then he adds, the nations will walk by its light. So let me go further than what I said before. There is only one S-U-N in our solar system, but we won't even need it at that time. Apparently, the Father and the Son will provide all the light we need. Our Lord wasn't kidding when he said, quote, He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. He meant that figuratively, and it also appears literally. Speaking of which, how does that statement support the doctrine of assurance, Andy? Well, Jordan, when Jesus said the words, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, as we read in John 8, 12, he was prophesying the words of John in Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. You know, let's never forget, Jesus himself is 100% God, 100% perfect, and the only omniscient one that would never lie, that could never lie. He's giving us, the reader, a glimpse into the future of how it will be for believers in his future everlasting kingdom. Okay, so before we move on from the Gospel of John, we should also mention that Jesus repeated today's I am phrase in another part of the Gospel of John. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, note the symbolism, near the pool of Siloam. Before he performs this miracle, in John 9, 4-5, Jesus says, Quote, we must carry out the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jordan, earlier you mentioned a time during the Old Testament when the prophets and righteous people knew of the promises of the Messiah to come, but they did not have the light to allow them to see how those promises would be fulfilled. Like you said, they didn't have Jesus. Remember that after the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us will also be raptured. And then once again, there will be a time during the seven-year tribulation when the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will temporarily take up dominion of the earth. Therefore, as per John chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, Christians must be faithful in fulfilling the duties of carrying our cross daily and do our best under the influence of the Holy Spirit to share the good news and shine Christ's light inside us. Now let's move on to Matthew. We've asked Christian to begin a few verses before our scripture reading. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Question, Jordan. What reward in heaven might Jesus be referencing here? 
Well, one possibility is the five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. When he returns, King Jesus will wear many bejeweled crowns, or diadema, or diadems, and that's in Revelation 19.12, signifying his complete authority as the King of Kings. Those who are deemed worthy to be co-heirs with Christ will wear a different type of crown, a Stephanos or Stephanos crown. That word in the original language of the New Testament has the sense of a wreath or laurel, like the ones given to winners of the Olympic Games back in ancient times. Today, we might think about them as gold medals, except in the original games, these awards were worn on the head like a crown. So as mentioned, there are five of these crowns of reward in the New Testament. The imperishable crown, 1 Corinthians 9. The crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. And the crown of life, which is in James 1 and also in Revelation 2. That last crown is one possibility for what Jesus might have been talking about when he told the disciples their reward in heaven for enduring persecution would be great. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 1.12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And Revelation 2 goes further, saying this crown is for those who remain, quote, faithful until death. Great answer, Jordan, and I concur. To support this, I think of the words of Paul, written by him in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, which state, We are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we see here that enduring any persecution because of our belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, and even the lifestyle he requires of us to live, will result in us being rewarded as, quote, fellow heirs with Christ during his millennial kingdom on earth in our glorified bodies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Salt had two purposes in ancient times, to preserve or protect from decay, since there were no refrigerators, and like now to add flavor. So what is Jesus trying to teach his followers with this metaphor, Andy? Well, Jordan, we could easily conclude from these verses that we are preservative and a flavor additive to mankind. As a preservative, our witness to the world in word and deed is what's necessary to keep the gospel alive and offer mankind the way to salvation. As a flavor additive, our expressions of joy and praise to God keeps people interested in wanting to know why we Christians are so willing to be persecuted for our faith. And I believe salt becomes tasteless when we water down the truth in the word and compromise its meaning for our own selfish agendas. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand 
and it gives light to all who are in the house. The city on a hill metaphor should be familiar, as has been cited by many famous leaders throughout American history, including President Ronald Reagan in both his inaugural and farewell addresses. In any case, Jesus first uses it here, and also he uses the metaphor of a lamp, household light. So what is he trying to teach his followers? That answer is simple, Jordan. Once Jesus lights our spiritual lamp, meaning the Holy Spirit that has been sealed within us, he wants us to proudly tell the world of our salvation and our transformation. He wants us to yell about it from the rooftops, not keep it in a handkerchief and bury it as the worthless and lazy slave did in the parable of the talents. And you could read about that in Matthew 25, verse 24 to 30. Okay, so now let's get into the connection between Jesus declaring that he is the light of the world and also that his followers are the light of the world. As we said, like the S-U-N, the S-O-N brought light into the world. This holds for Jesus because he was both God, the source of light, and man, a creature that at best can reflect God's light. The disciples and all of Christ's followers today fall into the latter category. We can only hope to reflect God's light. So perhaps to keep with this astronomical analogy, we are like the moon. As we learned in school, the moon is not a source of light. It merely reflects the sun. Yeah, Jordan, that's correct. And consider this. When the moon is full and positioned right, it reflects the sun and shines brightly. But when caught behind the earth and outside the direct light of the sun, it's darkened. And as a result, it shines little to no light for man on the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus said to his disciples, Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So translating this verse into a message for us today, we are commanded to let people see our light in the form of the good works that we do. But here's the interesting part. Again, we can only reflect that light. Our goodness doesn't come from us. We're not a source of light. We're not the sun. At our best, we are the moon, as we said earlier. We reflect God's light, and we should reflect any praise for that light back to God above. Yes, and if we interrupt that proper spiritual process, we lose out on something very special. Jesus taught about this later in the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke of those who practiced their righteousness in public in order to be noticed. They would pray loudly and publicly, and they would make loud noises when they gave to the poor, and even made their faces look worn down when they were fasting. Jesus said of them that they would have no reward in heaven for these actions because they had already received their reward in full. Andy, I think about that often, and I try to teach it to my children as well. You know, I tell them what Jesus said, when you take credit for your good works, that becomes your reward. And that's a great reminder for all of us. You know, just as Esau foolishly gave away his inheritance for a hot meal, we sometimes foolishly give up reward in heaven for the quickly fading reward of attention or human praise. But if we can be diligent and make sure we do not take glory for our good works, then we can earn treasure in heaven, which does not fade and cannot be destroyed or stolen. This gives new and important meaning to the phrase, all glory to God, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. When someone compliments you for a righteous work and you say this phrase, 
you are doing correctly. You know, we're meant to deflect all glory back to God because the truth is that act for which we're receiving that praise had very little to do with us and everything to do with him. And yet we can get full credit, eternal credit, if we just get our ego out of the way. We have some time left, so let's do a conversation question. The Bible often talks about good works, but how do we know what counts as good works with God besides the obvious things like feeding the poor? Yeah, it's a great question. And in the last verse we read, Jesus gives us a a great idea for how we can tell. He says our good works should be done in such a way that people see them and then glorify God in response. We can imagine this as any work we do that leads someone to say, praise God. Yes, and let's never forget that God's eyes are always upon us. He even knows every thought that passes through our minds. Therefore, it's not just the spiritually led good things we do that will reap us a reward, but also the many things we say no to and stop ourselves from doing that are considered good works, which only he knows about. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus said that our good works should be done in such a way that people see them, which suggests they should be done publicly. But of course, there's a danger in that. The world loves to glorify the individual. I mean, think about it. If the disciples were around today and they were doing miracles, the news would constantly be telling the story as if Peter or Paul, let's say, were the hero. The apostles would be hounded by Hollywood agents wanting to option the rights to their stories or whatever. They would no doubt be strong enough to correct the record constantly and avoid the temptation, but what about us? How long before we accepted the glory and we traded short-term fame for long-term gain, before we took what is rightfully God's for ourselves? Yeah, that's a great point, Jordan. The good Lord knows we aren't perfect. We should always strive for perfection while keeping a good conscience. We should always be willing in season and out of season to give a good account of our stewardship for Christ. That's 20 minutes, and that's our lesson. Before we go, don't forget, we want to hear from you. We welcome your questions and comments, even if you don't agree with us. Just give us a call and leave a message. Our number is 908-271-6717. If you ask a good question or make a good point, We may even put you on the show. Once again, our number is area code 908-271-6717. Of course, many folks today like to comment on social media. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even TikTok and YouTube. Or you can just visit our website at 20mbs.org. That's the number 20, followed by the letters mbs.org. The mission of Mysteries of the Kingdom is to reach as many spiritually hungry Christians as possible. We all know studying the Word of God is vital to our spiritual growth, yet it can be hard sometimes to find a good study group and then attend that group on a regular basis. That's why we created 20-Minute Bible Studies. Everyone can find 20 minutes for God. And with these on-demand audio programs, Christians can listen to a Bible study whenever and wherever they like. If you'd like to participate in this ministry and receive the blessings that come from helping to spread God's word, please visit MOTK.org and click Donate. We pledge that every cent you contribute will go directly toward recording and broadcasting more lessons like the one you heard today. So until next time, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center. Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.